the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Mr. President, they found a million dollars in your brown pants. Well, we haven't reached that point yet uh, where someone on the big guy's staff says that to him, but or, or when someone in the press room, I guess, uh, asks Corrine Jean-Pierre if the White House has any comment on uh, the million dollars that were found in the president's brown pants. But we might be getting there. The latest, according to some newly released bank records, uh, says that the uh, Biden family accepted $20 million from foreign countries, and that includes Russia. This is according to bank records that were released by the House Oversight and Accountability Committee today. Foreign sources sent money to multiple Biden family members and business associates when Joe was vice president. <clears throat> and in February 2014, Yelena Ballerina, a Russian billionaire, sent $3.5 million to Rosemont Seneca Thornton. That's a shell company, one of many, uh, owned by Hunter Biden and his partner Devin Archer. Everybody, well, everybody except the Democrats and the media, uh, trying to figure out what exactly Hunter and his buddies were providing to these countries for the millions of dollars they were receiving. Of course, most of the media have no curiosity about this. And here's a good one. In April, according to these... Uh, 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 this, this information released today. In April, a Kazakhstani oligarch named Kanis Rakashev sent $142,300 to Rosemont Seneca. The next day, a payment was made from Rosemont Seneca for a sports car for Hunter Biden in the amount of $142,300. That's a pretty nice sports car, by the way. Hunter and Archer arranged for Burisma executives to visit Kazakhstan two months later in June 2014 to evaluate a three-way deal between Burisma, a Chinese state-owned company, and the government of Kazakhstan. But there's nothing to see here. Joe had no idea any of this was happening, and he never spoke to Hunter about it or met any of uh, Hunter's business buddies. As I said, we are getting close. To Mr. President, they found a million dollars in your brown pants. Let's see if the media can get interested before we reach that point. When we come back, Adam Angievsky of OpenTheBooks.com will be here to talk about the millions of dollars that were paid to the doctors who were pushing the vaccines, including Dr. Fauci. And in our second half hour, we're going to talk to the author of a book called The End of Woman, how smashing the patriarchy has destroyed us. Stick around. Well, do you miss uh, Dr. Fauci? You know anybody who wishes uh, they could see him on TV every day, you know, like during the, the good old days of COVID-19? Well, he's retired now, and it's looking like COVID was very, very good for Dr. Fauci and his friends. Adam Angievsky is the founder and CEO of OpenTheBooks.com. He has the numbers, as usual. He joins us now. Adam, thanks for coming on again. Hey, John. Hey, John. Thanks for having me on. It's great to be back. 
So um, what's the $325 million third-party royalty complex? Is it possible to explain what that is in a short amount of time? So I think at the height of the pandemic, the American people started to feel that big government was very close to big pharma. And now because of our work at OpenTheBooks.com, we know just how close they are. Every single year, the National Institutes of Health, they dole out an incredible $30 billion plus of grant making grants to over 50,000 recipients. It buys you a lot of friends. It buys you a lot of allies. It basically buys you the entire healthcare space across the entire country. But now we know coming back through the other door over the course of the last 12 years were hundreds of millions of dollars worth of third party industry paid royalties back to NIH, which enriched the agency, its leaders, and 2,407 of its scientists. So it was $325 million since 2009. So, uh, uh, so again, what is a third-party royalty? So a third-party royalty is a government scientist in a government lab, all paid for by taxpayers. They invent something. Mm -hmm. And for uh, distribution and monetization, they license it to private sector entities. You know, think pharmaceutical companies. Yeah, yeah. Uh, the pharmaceutical company, the entity, then pays royalties back to the National Institutes of Health, and they split those royalties with their scientists. Um, and so that's what a third-party royalty is. It's legal. So since 1980, under the Biden-Dole Act, um, it's entirely legal. Uh, but what we're saying is we need transparency. We need to be able to follow the money because every single one of these payments has the appearance and potential of a conflict of interest. Now. That's uh, so. Did, did Dr. Fauci make out on this deal? Yes. So we showed uh, since 2009, he received 32 uh, third-party royalty payments from three different co uh, companies. Um, two of those companies are some of the top royalty payers at the National Institutes of Health. So you've got uh, Santa Cruz Biotech, and you have uh, Novartis. And Novartis bought a company that was paying uh, Fauci royalties. Novartis is number 10 out of 2,000 in companies on the payment count of royalties. And number five is actually Santa, Santa Cruz Biotech. So, uh, so these uh, people are employed by the government. The, uh, the NIH is a government um, agency. And they do their job. And then the taxpayers... Are funding the royal ends up end up in a back doorway of funding royalties to them. It's all coming from taxpayer money. So, so taxpayers pay for the invention in the government labs, yeah. and then uh, when the technology is transferred to the private sector, there's a license agreement that's signed, and it comes with a negotiated uh, negotiated royalty payments back to the agency, which is then split with the scientist who invented it. So. So the royalties are actually coming from the private sector company. Uh, look, if, uh, if NIH was so proud of this entire arrangement, they should have, like when we started asking questions two years ago, they should have welcomed me into Washington, D.C., sat me down in a conference room at 10 a.m. And, 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 you know, been proud of, of the entire arrangement. But here's what happened, something totally different. NIH has done everything they could do to stop us and to stop the information from going public. So when we filed our Info uh, Freedom of Information Act request two years ago, they ignored it. They forced us to engage in expensive federal litigation to sue them. 
when we won that, they slow walked 3,000 pages of these third-party royalty payments over the course of 10 months, and then they redacted them to such a degree that the production was virtually worthless. They sent leaders like the acting director of the National Institutes of Health, Lawrence Tabak, and Anthony Fauci himself in front of congressional hearings, misled Congress. They said they didn't have to produce any of this information. And then all of a sudden, last week, we got amended production out of the NIH showing us for the first time, showing anybody for the first time since 2005, the companies who paid the royalties. Finally, they disclosed who paid Fauci, who paid Francis Collins, the then director of NIH, and who paid other leaders and 2,400 of its scientists at the agency. Why is it important to know which companies paid the royalty and what is the royalty based on? So here I'm going to walk you through some examples of right. uh, things that are pretty surprising that we found in the database. Number one is Purdue Pharma. They're the makers of OxyContin. They were paying royalties and licensing technology invented in the taxpayer-paid labs. They were paying royalties back to NIH during a period where NIH was trying to create a partnership with them. We found, uh, we found the adversarial nations of China, Russia, and even Belarus with entities and companies within those countries licensing NIH medical technologies and paying NIH for the use of taxpayer-funded discoveries and inventions. So, for instance, in Russia, you've got an animal vaccine maker who has alleged, the Washington Post alleged they have ties to Soviet-era bioweapons and dangerous pathogen production, licensing our technologies from NIH and paying our federal government NIH royalties. You've got China, uh, CCP, uh, Chinese Communist Party, uh, state-owned pharmaceutical companies, again, paying royalties to the National Institutes of Health, licensing the technologies and paid for by taxpayers and invented in our labs. And, you know, one of the, we tied out one of these state uh, companies, moved right next to, they're a neighbor to the Wuhan Institute of Virology, and they collaborated and partnered with the Wuhan Institute on projects. So you have all of these examples. So in, in the United States, there's about 3,000 pharmaceutical companies. There are 2,000 companies in this database, and it shows you how pervasive and how embedded this culture of third-party royalties has become. All we're saying is that every dime of it should be transparent. Who, to whom are they indebted? Well, I think all of this, you know, when you start, look, everybody listening to the program should come to our website at openthebooks.com. We are allowing everybody to download an Excel file of all of these royalties since 2009. Who paid who? You can see it all. You can just download it to your own computer and take a look. And there, you know, uh, NIH, for a gaggle of doctors, John, they're treating sunlight, they're treating transparency like a viral pathogen. <laughs> they don't want to answer any questions on this database. Well, what I guess I'm, maybe I'm, I'm not smart enough to grasp all this, but what would the alternative be to these companies paying royalties uh, to the doctor? Not paying anything at all or paying them to somebody else? Well, I think it is a symptom of big government. I mean, NIH has grown to such a degree that they're, back, they're basically 
the back office, research and development office for every single major pharmaceutical company across the world. That's what we're seeing in this database. So like who knew the pervasive extent of the control that they have over the entire U.S. and foreign healthcare markets? That's what we're seeing in the data. That's what they don't want exposed. Well, everybody hates Pfizer now. <laughs> so just as an example, how would Pfizer be um, involved in this? Uh, I think you mentioned a minute ago. But, but how would f- just uh, one company like Pfizer, when everything we know about the vaccine and all that, how would Pfizer uh, be involved in this and how would Pfizer be benefiting from it? So in the, in the NIH disclosures, we sorted out Pfizer. They're listed under multiple companies, including Pfizer Inc., Pfizer Animal Health, Pfizer Global Research and Development, Pfizer Limited out of the UK. They've made the multiple Pfizer entities made 265 payments to 83 NIH scientists since 2009. Uh, look, the amount of the payment isn't listed, so we don't have an answer as to how much they paid in royalties, but we can see who they're paying and their names are finally in the database. Now, the COVID vaccine maker Moderna, for example, they paid 207 royalties to 43 NIH scientists since 2009 through May of 2021. Now, according to court disclosures, we know that Moderna settled litigation with NIH for $400 million on their COVID vaccine royalties just in 2022. Those, uh, you know, 2022 is not in this database because we've we've engaged for two years on litigation just to get where we are. I think I'm starting to grasp this now. Uh, I, I guess trying to use the, the Pfizer example, they uh, we we it's determined that we need a vaccine. Uh, does so if it's Dr. Fauci and I don't know if he got royalties from Pfizer, but if a doctor is getting royalties. Is the size of his royalty based on, let's say, just in the example for using Pfizer as an example, the more Pfizer vaccines that are sold, the more royalty money comes to the doctor? Yes. I mean, we have to be careful here because we don't, you know, NIH is not releasing the inventions yet to us. We Mm -hmm. still have to battle this out in federal court. So, uh, but as a general rule, yes, the more activity, the more money, the more sales on your invention, the higher your royalty would be. Um, So yes, that stands to reason. So let's take Pfizer and Moderna. We know that during 2020 and 2021, those two companies had combined profits to their bottom line, to their shareholders of $65 billion. Pretty good year. Yeah, it's, it's. Uh, I think it's a million dollars a second for two full years. Tremendous amount of profit. Wow. Well, we we took a look at the federal checkbook, John. Since 2008, those two companies had received from U.S. government agencies on contracts and grants $65 billion. So, and they they also put a tremendous amount of money into lobbying on Capitol Hill. And so... You know, now we know that they have paid NIH alone between the two companies approximately a half billion dollars that has flowed back to NIH on these third party royalties from the two companies just in the past couple of years. And so and so, you know, when you start to follow the money, you start to ask questions like, 
you know, did any other therapeutic on COVID stand a chance? If, if the U.S. federal government has $65 billion investment into these two companies, were they only going to use these two companies or did somebody else have a fighting chance? And, you know, people are smart enough to come to their own conclusions. We're talking to Adam Angieski. He's the founder and CEO of OpenTheBooks.com. As he said, you can go to OpenTheBooks.com and, and see a lot of all the details on this. So now it's it's starting to get through to my thick head through my thick head here, and that is um, maybe I should be suspicious anytime I see a doctor doing a press conference with a government official telling me about the wonders of a drug or some kind of medical device or something like that that I should use. I should be suspicious that this the better job that this doctor does of convincing people to use this product the more money he's going to end up having in his pocket. Yeah, and let's take Fauci, historic Fauci example. So in 1997 through 2004, Fauci received $45,000 in third-party royalties from Siron, a company that had licensed his AIDS invention. Uh, eventually, the New England Journal of Medicine declared, after 10 years of looking at studies, there was no af- efficacy to Fauci's drug. But Fauci continued to receive third-party royalties from that company, according to this new disclosure, through 2014. Uh, You know, in 2004, Fauci gave them a contract to develop a vaccine for the bird flu. In, you know, so, I mean, it just begs, you know, so Fauci is collecting royalties on one hand from this company, and he's handing out contracts on the other hand. $36 million of his own institutes, National Institute of Allergy and Infectious Diseases money, our money, taxpayer money, $36 million, went to help test that Fauci invention at 200 sites across 18 countries over five years. So, I mean, just like on its face, these are conflict of interest issues. And everybody knows about the vaccine and the Pfizer vaccine, the Moderna and all that stuff. And uh, everybody knows that Dr. Fauci was out there pushing it. And that was a big one. That was one for everybody. Everybody had to get the vaccine. So are there, ex- are there examples of smaller uh, and less, um, I don't know, products that, that aren't going to have as, as much of an effect on the population as the vaccine did? maybe just a bunch of smaller products where the same thing is happening and adding up to a gigantic amount of money. So let's take Douglas Lowey. He's the acting director three times since 2015 of the National Cancer Institute. Mm -hmm. Okay, so he's in a position of leadership. He's an executive there. He's been at that agency for decades. And, you know, he's he's been the deputy director of that institute um, since 2010. So he uh, also directs a research laboratory there since 1975 and held the title of the chief laboratory cellular oncology okay within their center for cancer research so he's a bigwig there and since 2009 he's collected 192 payments from 32 companies <laughs> okay so he's the inventor his invention is has made gardasil and gardasil 9 and cervix um you know, those are the drugs based on his invention, and they're marketed by Merrick and GlaxoSmithKline. Just Gardasil and Gardasil 9 last year alone generated $1.5 billion in sales, okay? He's been the head of an institute, and he's receiving many royalty payments 
for very successful inventions. Wow. And Gardasil is, is one of those things, one of those um, vaccines, that there's people on all sides of it. There's pro-Gardasil people and there's anti-Gardasil people. And, and so, you know, all of these questions come into play when the guy actually heads up one of the institutes at NIH. Now, hey, NIH will say they have they have um, they have firewalls in place. Well, hey Adam, but, you know, Adam, I'm out of time. I'm up against a hard break here. Um, people should go to um, find this stuff at OpenTheBooks.com, and I hope to have you on again. Thanks a lot, but I, I apologize. I have to go. I'm out of time. Sounds great, John. Okay, that's Adam Angievsky. Check him out at OpenTheBooks.com. I'll be back. Well, we, uh, we actually have a woman sitting on the Supreme Court of the United States of America who admitted in public not too long ago that she couldn't define what a woman is, and apparently half of the country, maybe more, I don't know, at least half, doesn't have a problem with that. That doesn't seem like a good thing. Uh, Dr. Carrie Gress is the author of The End of Woman, How Smashing the Patriarchy Has Destroyed Us All, and she joins us now. Carrie, thanks for coming on the show. Thanks so much for having me. So the title of your book uh, is The End of Woman, Not the End of Women. Um, uh, is there some significance there? Yeah, well, I mean, I think what, what we've seen over the last 50 years in particular, but um, certainly more acutely, you know, in the last few last few years, really, um, is this effort to just erase womanhood altogether. So it's not specific women, but it's the idea of, of woman. Um, altogether. And yeah, that's really the, the stretch of my book is to, to show how this has been kind of rolling out slowly for at least 200 years with the feminist movement. This is really the, the pinnacle of it is to um, erase womanhood and the vulnerabilities with it. And what is really seen is not um, not the idealized form, which, you know, we've, we've, we see in manhood. Yeah, I'm just wondering, someone who's uh, studied this for a long time and, and written a book like this, um, what was your reaction when you saw someone who was being interviewed as a prospective um, <laughs> Supreme Court justice being asked yeah. what a woman is and finding that to be a difficult question to answer and then not answering it? Yeah, no, I mean, I think it's just astounding but not surprising when you look at the political climate and just what she was trying to dance around. Mm -hmm. Um, The sad thing, of course, is that she claims she's not a biologist and (laughs) the women that uh, the people that are, you know, she's trying to be careful about are actually biologically not even women. So a biology degree would not have helped her. Um, So, yeah, I I think it's just this incredible place that we've gone to where someone in that situation, you know, is able to dance around that and still can be confirmed. Um, you know, to to not ha- actually be have to give any kind of an ad- answer, um, I think should be disturbing to to all of us for, for well, certain. And you write in your book that women have been trying to make themselves into men mentally and now biologically for fifty years, and in the scramble, mm-hmm. frittered away what it means to be a woman. That's um, yeah. that goes back a long way, fifty years. Yeah, well, actually, it goes back even further than that, um, and that was one of the fascinating things I found in my book was going. I go all the way back to the 1790s and the work of Mary Wollstonecraft, who has long been considered the godmother of feminism. Um, but it all started, I think, with you know the best of intentions. Women were really trying to help other women in tight spots and you know awful situations, 
But the the response they had was not, how do we help women as women? But instead, how do we help women become more like men? Because they saw men had much of what they thought was much easier lives. Um, so that's, that's really became the overriding question, certainly a first wave feminism. And then, you know, we see second wave feminism getting, you know, coming to, to light in the 1960s and 70s. And that idea of how do we make women like men, um, you know, also joins up with the new left and all this com- communist and Marxist ideology, which really isn't trying to make, um, help women as women, but they're trying to make women into these great Marxist thinkers, um, become, you know, great workers and um, fit into all of those communist ideology pieces, ideological pieces. Um, so, yeah, it's it's been a pretty big and powerful movement, and um, we're just seeing it really kind of reach what it's been trying to reach for a long time. This idea of you know getting rid of gender altogether um, is, is certainly not new either. Uh, again, I, I don't want to beat the uh, the Supreme Court justice thing to death, but um, it, it 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 just it it kind of culminates in that, doesn't it? I mean, this this um, this woman didn't feel like she was allowed to define what a woman is. Everybody knows that she knows yeah. what one is, but she's yeah. admitting that. Well, I can't I can't do that. I'm not allowed to do that. Yeah. No, and I think that's exactly right. It's she isn't allowed because she knows that she would be pummeled by the left and by radical feminists and those who really want to be able to say that a, you know, a man in a dress and, and high heels can call himself a woman if he feels like it. Um, and that's really the, the big problem is how pervasive that ideology has, has become that it would it, it, you know, even silence her uh, on that topic um, very specifically. Yeah, I, uh, I I keep seeing this, this. This stuff drives me crazy, as it does many people, I'm sure. Um, <laughs> but I just saw a guy being interviewed uh, the other day. He's, um, I think it's Harry's Shavers. He's a guy. He's one of these guys who came up with a, a razor company, and he was doing really well with it. And he was interviewed, and I don't know the context, but uh, he made a point to refer when he was talking about uh, what I don't know why he was referring to parents when he was talking about the blades but what he said what what jumped out at me was that he said the birthing parent he didn't mm-hmm. say the mother he said the birthing parent right. and it's it's right. just it, it's such insanity that i i and and he says it with a straight face and people nod and applaud and cheer because he does it is there any yeah. way to get away, to get back to to nor, a normalcy from this how how can we ever yeah. return to normal Yeah, well, I mean, I think there are several things going on. The first thing is we can't keep doing what we've been doing, which is really just absorb um, all this, you know, the Marxist ideology, the the woke culture, um, you know, critical race theory, all of those kinds of things. We have to start pushing back on it. Uh, The other reality is, and I have a whole chapter on this in my book, is just recognizing that, you know, what the woke culture is doing and what, what the whole radical feminist movement has been doing is making man... A god, um, you know, trying to change human nature into something of our own devising, instead of working with what is actually there, what's God given. Um, so I, I think that that's another element. It's just recognizing that this is a much bigger issue um, than just language and pronouns. But there, there's a whole existential question there, um, which I think is really important because we we've seen that cultures that go down this road end up committing suicide. We've got incredible data on that and um you know they end up crumbling and and i think we can see a lot of that happening in our own culture at this stage 
Um, so it's, it's, it's really, it, you know, it's not just a question of basic pronouns, but it has such far reaching ramifications, I think for us and, you know, children and grandchildren, um, in terms of what, what the United States is going to look like. And I think we're at this point now where we have to decide, are we going to keep buying this and pretending that people are something that they're really not, or are we going to, you know, put our foot down and, and start really focusing on reality again? We're talking to Dr. Carrie Gress. She's the author of The End of Woman, How Smashing the Patriarchy Has Destroyed Us All. So, um, Carrie, what exactly is the patriarchy, and is it a bad thing? I mean, I, I, I know yeah. what it is, I think. But Yeah, no, so the, the patriarchy is really this idea that recognizes the authority of men. Men have incredible gifts. They, you know, we can see it certainly in... Um, in scripture, you know, going back to the Old Testament, the New Testament, we've got a hierarchy with, within the church, um, the Catholic Church in particular. But there's also the hierarchy um, of the military, and then we can see it in our own families, that, that uh, you know, fathers as the head, in light of the fact that they provide, protect, procreate, those three elements are in place. Um, and what feminism has really tried to abolish are all those specific gifts and erase the authority that, that men have. And um, Kate Millett, who was this radical feminist, part of the New Left, very influenced by the Frankfurt School, um, and she, her specific way of getting rid of the patriarchy was really to destroy the culture, to promote um, homosexuality, promiscuity, and prostitution. All these things that, you know, you think of in the 1960s and 70s were not really on people's radar. And yet um, she saw that when we start corrupting the culture, then that destroys the nuclear family, and that also destroys the authority that that a husband has um, and a father has. And that's it's amazing to look at how effective feminism has been in silencing men in particular. And you know, I think men have I have tremendous sympathy for you all because there's not really any way you can win any kind of discussion about feminism. And so, you know, for decades, nobody has felt like they can say anything. And so it's just really, then you can really see how it's, it's turned into power struggle because women feel like they have, they need to be in control and, you know, a powerful situation, have a matriarchy. And this was even the message that we see in that, that recent film um, of Barbie. Uh, You know, everything in Barbie looks great when the women are in charge and everything is all men are in charge. So it's really a negation of manhood and a negation of the gifts that men have and have been given to bring order to society. I, I, I covered sports for a long time um, on mm-hmm. TV. I was a TV sportscaster, and there's a mm-hmm. lot of talk recently, of course, about the, um, the women's soccer team. And, and yeah. I, what, what makes me laugh is when I hear anybody complaining about the patriarchy and how it affects or dominates sports, and you know sometimes the, the the female participants, players, coaches, they complain about it, and mm. I always am <laughs> always reminded that every single sport in the history that I'm aware of, well, I'll just go with North America, was created by men for men. If it weren't for the patriarchy, they wouldn't have any sport to complain about. Well, and I think that's one of those obvious points that a lot of these ideas just are, are not thought through. I mean, that was one of the things that I found over and over again. A lot of the, the feminist rhetoric was that, the, you know, they just are not, they don't have any depth to them. 
they're lacking a lot of history. The problem is they just don't get fact-checked. I mean, I think The View is probably the one show that does get fact-checked because people can actually see it on a regular basis. But a lot of times people are not willing to dive into a Gloria Steinem book or, uh, you know, something like that. Um, and she's one of the more non-academic ones, academic ones nobody wants to read because nobody can make any sense of what they're saying. But um, so it, it's incredible to me how much is out there that, you know, men really don't even know that women are talking about because they're in women's magazines or women's films. And so it's just an amazing thing to see how much, you know, just ridiculous ideas have made them made been popularized kind of in the minds of women because we just don't have enough context to really realize that they're ridiculous. You know, Gloria Steinem is famous for talking about how peaceful the world would be if women were in charge. And that, you know, that was just an idea that so many people have held. I've heard men say it, men who are celebrities say it. Um, and yet, of course, we know that, you know, women don't have some sort of special power of, yeah. of peace. We have a great gift of compassion, but that doesn't always translate into a peaceful dynamic, certainly not on geopolitical terms either. Um, so, yeah, I think that's a real struggle is, is how do we help women have better context and a sense of history of, you know, what it is that they're tossing out instead of um, gaining well, by getting rid of I saw a post uh, from the Babylon Bee. You're familiar with the Babylon Bee? Oh, sure. Yeah, yep. uh, it was, I don't have it in front of me here, but it was something to the effect of, um, uh, what's, a, what's, the, what's one of the, um, the food delivery services? Uh, 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 like Uber Eats or yeah, something? Yeah, Uber or? Eats. Uber Eats mm-hmm. uh, comes up with a new service for single women. Uh, for Men will come by and open pickle jars. <laughs> Oh, I saw that yesterday. It's great. <laughs> it's pretty yeah. good, wasn't it? That's uh, great. Yeah, I think uh, it's that's, great. that's that kind of sums up a lot, really. Uh, so here, I yeah. want to read you something. We're talking to uh, Dr. Kerry Gress. The book is "The End of Woman: How Smashing the Patriarchy Has Destroyed Us All." I just saw this a few minutes uh, before we put the call into you. It's on the CBC's website, Canadian Broadcasting Corporation, and it's mm-hmm. uh, it's a feature called First Person." It's a 19-year-old woman. And the headline is, and this just, to me, this shows how, how ridiculous it's become. The headline is, I shouldn't have to look, not, look quote unquote, non-binary for my identity to, be, identity to be respected. I like my feminine name and wearing the occasional dress, but that doesn't define me. And then this is what she writes, Carrie. This is a 19-year-old person. Last year I attended a conference where everyone wore name tags. I had proudly and visibly written they, them below my name. When I helped a special guest presenter set up, they asked to see my tag, but while remembering my name, the presenter repeatedly referred to me as, quote-unquote, she. My head started spinning, and I had an overwhelming urge to run to the washroom and throw up. That's what she, this is, a, this is somebody writes this seriously, um, and is this just somebody, is it any more complicated than this is someone who needs to get over herself? Yeah, yeah. No, and I think this is really sad, is that, the, you know, young people are being told that this is something that should should trigger them. I mean, that's yeah. just, just the triumph of the therapeutic, to put it the way um, Carl Truman, my colleague at the Ethics and Public Policy Center, has written about it. And, um, yeah, this is just the amazing thing that, uh, and this is actually really what happened to Frankfurt School Thinkers was, this idea our we can't um, our wounds really are emotional wounds and not physical wounds, and that we we are victimized 
um, by words. And, you know, that's something that was brand new idea. And, of course, leave it up to the Marxists to come up with it and use it in a way to make people think that they're victims and therefore, you know, get them angry and disconcerted and bitter and, you know, resentful and all of that. Because that's really what ultimately they want is our our large populations who are resentful and angry at one another. And, you know, they've done this in spades with, with women and men um, for the last 50 years. I think we're seeing it in real time now with um, certainly racism has been a much more, you know, bigger issue of late, too. That's another area they're doing it. Um, but yeah, it's, it's, it's just, it's highly effective and, um, it's just amazing how many people have bought into it without, and certainly a lot of these people probably are very emotionally disturbed in, in many ways. And this is just another manifestation of it, but that instead of being helped to say, how do you sort through this, um, you know, in healthy terms and they're being pushed to just go deeper, um, by, you know, being made more confused about their own bodies and what they should be doing with them and, Hormones and you know all of that. I have about thirty seconds left. Maybe it's unfair, but um, <laughs> does the fact that Budweiser is about could, might be ready to go out of business because of Dylan Mulvaney is that a good sign that people are starting to wake up? Yeah, uh, I think it's an incredibly hopeful sign. I think um, you know for years these companies, major companies, have been doing things, and we just keep absorbing it, and they keep going further and further. I think uh, you know regardless, it's going to give people pause and other major corporations to start pushing, keeping, continuing to push this agenda on us. So uh, I think it's very hopeful. Well, uh, Dr. Carrie Grass, uh, Grass, I'm sorry, the book is The End of Woman, How Smashing the Patriarchy Has Destroyed Us All. Good luck with the book. Thanks for coming on. Thanks so much. My pleasure. Okay, we'll be back. How about a little sports to finish up here today? Uh, pretty big day for the Penguins. Um their uh, their new player Carlson showed up and met the media today to uh, I guess pretty good reviews and it made me think of a couple things. Number one, um, he's he's a uh, he's a spectacular player. He had a hundred points uh, last year as a defenseman. That just doesn't happen. And it reminded me of when Paul Coffey came to the Penguins. I was there for the first game that Paul Coffey played. Uh, he was a uh, defenseman who was known for his speed, played with uh, Gretzky, scored a bunch of goals, had 100 points, and um, he was a spectacular player. I remember the first night that he played, uh, the, after the Penguins had made the trade, the first his first game, and I'm talking about his first shift when he came over the boards the first time, five seconds after his skates touched the ice, you knew everything had changed. There was actually a gasp from the crowd because he was so different from anything anybody had seen in Pittsburgh. I mean, people had seen him play uh, for, for, the, for the Edmonton Oilers, but he is a transitional, spectacularly exciting player. So that's I'm not saying Carlson is that, he's, but he's that kind of a player. He might be every bit as good, maybe better. I don't know. But it's a great moment. And here's the thing. I, 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 I said the same thing when the Penguins went out and got Phil Kessel, who ended up helping them win two Stanley Cups. There was some question about whether it was a good trade. Uh, there were a lot of issues about Kessel, inconsistency, a lot of things about him. But I, I, on the, when the trade was made, I just went to YouTube and checked out the highlights. I, did some, I, I, I checked out Phil Kessel highlights. 
and I decided that's a good trade. Not because I looked at that and analyzed it and said, this guy can help the Penguins for X, Y, and Z, because he's going to entertain me. That's the most important thing about the trade. Any trade that any Pittsburgh team makes, it's how much will it add to the entertainment value for me when I watch the games, and that's what's going to happen with Eric Carlson. It's going to be interesting. And one little quick thing, if there's not a salary cap, if, if hockey is like baseball, no way he comes here. He, he, no way he comes here. He ends up in New York or Boston. I'll talk to you tomorrow. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal record to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.